welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When writing and speaking, you're told to know your audience. The Jewish leaders were an audience Paul knew all too well. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled Renewed Hope and Courage, which covers Acts chapter 22, verse 30 to chapter 23, verse 11. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We are going to continue. We have two more weeks, this week and next Sunday, in our third installment of walking through the book of Acts. And, um, you know, this is, I know many of you don't track with us on this. This is mainly to hear us talk uh, when we say things like this. Like, Jeff, I had somebody tell me recently, actually, he said, Jeff, you know, when you talk about that we're in our third year of walking through Acts, we don't remember that. You don't have to tell us that. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I feel like as a good pastor and preacher, I need to remind us that we have taken three years, little chunk one year, little chunk next year, and then now our third year walking through this, this book written by Luke. And so we've done three years. Why not stop after next week and then stretch it to one more year to finish out Acts next year? So we'll do that. We have two more weeks in Acts. Next Sunday, as I finish out this series, I'm actually gonna show you what our preaching plan is for the rest of the summer so that you can kind of know where we're headed, where God's leading us as a body to consider what to consider in this word over the rest of June and July and August. I still consider August the summer, even though we go back to school like August 2nd or whatever it is, which is ridiculous, by the way, if you want my opinion on that. Um, yeah. Used to, we used to get three months for summer and it was amazing, right? Our kids, they, they don't know what it's like to have a true summer. But anyway, I digress. I did not plan on saying that. That's not part of my sermon. Um, but we're in, this, we're in this, this part of the book of Acts where uh, it seems like, and as we work our way through these, these chapters, these, the chapters of the 20s of the book of Acts, it's gonna feel like, man, it's kind of the same thing happening over and over again. It's focused in on Paul, the apostle Paul, and he keeps seeking to proclaim the gospel everywhere he goes, and he keeps getting arrested and put, put on trial and held, and then all these conversations with him, uh, with the Jews and with the Roman authorities, as Paul is trying to fulfill his calling as a missionary to the Gentiles. And, and in some of these texts, admittedly, even as a preacher, Bob and Caleb and Jimmy and I have talked about, these are a little difficult to preach because it's not like, a, uh, it's not like an epistle or even some of the other narratives in scripture where it's like, man, I can easily find three points in this passage. It just lays out perfectly. So what do we do with that? Well, here's one thing that we do, and what, this is what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna make observations. What, what is happening in Paul's life as he is seeking to be a faithful minister of the gospel that corresponds to the same calling that we have in our life as followers of Christ? Are there things that we can glean and learn from Paul that point us to the great sufficiency of Jesus in the midst of the calling that he's placed on all of our lives to be messengers of the gospel. And I believe that in each one of these texts that we'll walk through over the next, this week and next week, and as we finish next spring or summer, you'll see, man, there's so much to learn and to glean from these final chapters of the book of Acts. Back in the fall, October, November-ish, 
uh, I started experiencing some, some weakness, some weariness, some weakness in my hands, my forearms. I started, uh, many, many of you know, I've shared before that I am a self-proclaimed recovering hypochondriac. I'll get a headache and I'll immediately think it's cancer, you know, that kind of guy. And so, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm having these weird sensations in my forearms. I feel like I can't grip as well as I used to. And so naturally, I immediately think this is something grave. I convince myself I'm dying, it's terminal. There's something now that's happening that will, I only have a short time left on this earth, right? These are the thoughts going in my head. And so I make an appointment with my doctor and I go see him and he says, well, I, I don't think it's what you're fearing, but let's do some blood work and you know, let's go from there and we'll begin to eliminate things. And so the blood work comes back and he very quickly says, I think I know what the problem is. He says, you are deficient in vitamin B12 and in vitamin D. Now, I know that's a shock when you see a blonde-haired, fair-skinned guy being you know, uh, insufficient in vitamin D, but I needed more of both of those. And he said, I really think if we get you on some supplements, you're gonna notice a big difference. Sure enough, within a few months after I had taken those faithfully, I felt extremely better. And it's a little bit of a cheesy analogy, but I think it works. I think it just helps us frame our minds and our hearts around the realities of how God has designed us for life spiritually as well. The Christian life can be a wearisome task. We can find ourselves seeking to walk with the Lord, seeking to be faithful in the calling that he's placed upon us as followers of him, seeking to believe his truth, and his promises and his goodness in the midst of a world full of sin and brokenness and darkness. And we can find ourselves, if we are not taking daily doses of the quote unquote vitamins that he's given us to sustain us and strengthen us to the calling that he's given us, we can find ourselves tired, weary, weak, worn out, feeling as though something's wrong. And so, in this passage that we're gonna look at this morning that Ben's about to come and read for us. Yeah, is he over here? Is he, is, has Ben been waiting for me to call him? Oh, was he standing the whole time? I, I apologize, Ben. Uh, so Ben's now gonna come and read for us. In this passage, we're gonna see that there are some vitamins, and you may not catch it, I'll explain it, that we need spiritually to be strengthened and to be sustained. So Ben's gonna read for us now out of Acts 22 and 23. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have my life, lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. Thank you, Ben. And I apologize for making you stand there and wonder if you were doing the right thing. You were, you were doing the right thing. Let's pray together as we have uh, recently in, uh, become our tradition, a prayer of illumination. Oh Lord, by this we know that we abide in you and you in us because you have given us of your spirit together. Abide with us as we worship you today and may your spirit illumine our hearts and minds that we might know and love you more deeply, amen. I wanna focus in on a few verses that we just heard read over us. As Paul is beginning to be on trial, he's before the tribune. So the tri tribune was uh, a, um, an important high-ranking Roman officer. We'll learn in, uh, in chapter 23 later on that his name is Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias has, brought, has been brought, uh, Paul has been brought before Claudius Lysias by the Jews because they've had enough of Paul. He stirred up way too much uh, commotion in Israel to where finally and throughout the, uh, throughout the Middle East that finally they said, okay, we gotta do something about this. So they brought him before the tribune and the tribune is, he's genuinely curious. What is it exactly? I'm still confused. What do they have against you? And so he, he summons again all the Jewish leaders, including the high priest. Apparently the high priest was not in his high priestly attire because Paul didn't know who he was. High priest announces to, Paul says, I've lived my life in faithfulness to God. The high priest uh, in anger says, orders to, be, to hit Paul and Paul retorts back at him. You whitewashed tomb, you hypocrite. How dare you punish me like that? Uh, not according to the law. And then they say, how dare you speak to the high priest like that? Paul says, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was the high priest. I know that the scripture says in Exodus 22 to never speak against the high priest. And so all this is going on. And then Paul notices something. He does something very clever. He being a Pharisee, being raised and taught in the highest school and education of Pharisee, uh, Phariseeism, he he notices, oh, this room is filled with both Pharisees and Sadducees, and he knows that that's, that's like putting into a room two brothers who don't like each other. And he says, in his mind, in his heart, he, he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stir up more controversy for the sake of getting me out of here. And so he says, watch what happens in verse six. It says, I'll read it again. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Well, Luke tells us, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In this one statement, Paul is piercing right to the core issue that divides these like-minded, like-believing Jewish brothers. You have on one hand the Pharisees, you have on the other hand the Sadducees. Let me tell you a little bit more about what the differences were between these two Jewish sects. When you think about the Sadducees, this is what was true of them. They were the aristocrats of the time. Uh, the wealthy, the rich, the high priestly families, lineage. They were in charge of the temple in Jerusalem and all of its services. They were very materialistic in their outlook. They took great pride in how they dressed and how they appeared before others. They flaunted their wealth. They did not believe, interestingly, they did not believe in life after death, nor did they believe because of that, of there being any reward or punishment from God according to how we live today. So as a, result, as a result, they didn't believe that God was really even concerned with how we live in this life. People were completely free to do according to their own free will and God was not concerned. Similarly, they denied the existence of angels or demons. They completely rejected anything of the spiritual world, which is interesting because they did obviously believe that there is a God. They protected their positions and their wealth at all costs. And they were, pro they were prolifically political, very politically engaged and concerned. The Pharisees, they controlled the synagogues. Sadducees controlled the temple in Jerusalem, but the synagogues throughout Israel were controlled by the Pharisees. Pharisees means separated ones. So it gives you a little bit of an insight into how they viewed themselves, that they were separate, they were more than. We're distinguished and different, not because of our wealth and our status, but because of our piety. We are who God really likes. We're very religious. We do everything right according to the law. They saw that the way to God was, be, was through obedience to the law. Therefore, they held a firm belief in the afterlife and the resurrection of the body. They believed in angels and demons and all of the spiritual world. Therefore, uh, they saw God as being very concerned with how we live. In fact, our salvation depends upon it, according to the Pharisees. And because of that, they were so uh, entrenched in the law that they went beyond the law to create more traditions and more laws that God never gave them that ended up being a yoke around the neck of the people who followed in the way of the Pharisees, that they were burdened deeply by religious duty and obligation. So what Paul says here is profound. He does something, again, very clever, but he does it with a twist. Again, in verse six, he says, it is for, or it is with respect, to the hope and the res resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, they have heard Paul teach enough by this point 
that they know that even though he's saying, look, I'm a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection of the dead just like you do, even the Pharisees know, yeah, but not, it's, it's different. You believe in the resurrection of the dead precisely and specifically centered around this Jesus who you are convinced rose from the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the dead that'll be through the Messiah who hasn't come yet. And then the Sadducees are just simply irate because there is no resurrection of the dead, according to them. And so I wanna ask you a few questions. I want you to consider something. If you identify, if you say you are a follower of Christ, then how do you live as it pertains to hope? The first point I wanna give you is that the resurrection of the Lord is our hope. You know, I started with that analogy of that we need certain vitamins every day, spiritually speaking, that God intended to give us that would sustain us and strengthen us for the mission that he's given us and the, call and the calling that he's given us here on this earth. And that, the first vitamin, there's many, there's many vitamins, but this morning we're gonna talk about two, and the first one is hope. We have to be a people of sure, secure, unfailing hope. And the Pharisees had hope, but their hope was in their ability to make God pleased with them through their piety, through their goodness, through their moral performance. The Sadducees had hope, but their hope was based on their status, that they were the chosen ones, and that it really had nothing to do with their religiosity, their goodness, their morality, their piety, any of that, but it had to do with that God just picked them and liked them and gave them great status on the earth. They were the favorites. But the question I have for us as Christians this morning is how do we fall into practically living kind of similar to how they did? I mean, think about it. How do you live in your practical everyday life in ways that looks more like a Sadducee than it does like a Christ follower? Is your hope, let me, let me just ask you some questions. Is your hope based more on your status and your wealth and your reputation and your accomplishments more than it is in Jesus. Specifically, more than it is in the resurrection of Jesus and in the return of Jesus when he will raise all of us from the dead. The reality of, think about this, the reality of a past event, the resurrection of Christ, and the reality of a future event, the resurrection of all the saints through the return of Christ, is the catalyst for our present hope. Our hope is purely, fully, completely anchored in and tethered to and centered on the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead accomplished through the finished work of Jesus. But how do we live on a daily basis without that in view? Well, we begin to look more like Sadducees. We begin to find our hope more in what we have, more in what we've attained, more in our reputation, more in our status, more in all the things that the Sadducees found to be what worthy of hope. I mentioned that they were, they were very politically engaged. Do you find yourself to be politically oriented such that your hope lives there? 
and that your hope rises and falls based on what's happening in that realm. If that's you, if that's me, if that's us, then that's not Christian hope. That's some other kind of hope. You, you might have been with us back in January when we walked through the first chapter of 1 Peter and we talked about living hope. And uh, you might remember that I, one of my favorite theologians of the past who's now with the Lord is a guy named Edmund Clowney. And Clowney di- differentiated between two types of hope. He said there's fragile hope and there's sure hope. And fragile hope is hope that is centered on the ways of the world and it's going to fall apart and it's going to be up and down and feel as though sometimes it's not there based on primarily our circumstances, our material possessions, our status, things like that. And so with that, our hope flounders or soars because it's a fragile hope. But what the Bible lays out for us based on the finished work of Jesus in his death, covering all of our sins, and then ultimately, most profoundly, in his resurrection, meaning that in our union with him through faith in him, we too can know that we will experience the resurrection of life, both in this life now as we have redeemed and resurrected hearts that were once dead, but then in the life to come, we have the great promise of knowing that we too will be raised with him. The resurrection, the very resurrection of our bodies. And so that's a sure hope, it's a secure hope. It's not a hope that invites us in to wish with crossed fingers that things were different. But it's a solid, sure, secure hope that invites us in to rest in the assurance through the resurrection of Christ. Maybe, perhaps, you find yourself, even as a Christian, living more like a Pharisee where your hope is based on your religious performance, your morality, your ability to win God's favor. You find yourself consistently feeling as though because you struggle in this life, even though you know Jesus, you struggle in this life with feeling like you're in the doghouse, God's doghouse, that he's frustrated with you all the time, that he's never pleased with you, that he's always looking down upon you with a scowl and a frown, and there's more that you could always be doing, and it's never enough, and you feel the yoke of religious duty around your neck that God never put on you. And your hope is focused on your religious ability, and therefore your hope is waning, because it's not on the resurrection of Jesus for us. Do you live as a practical Sadducee? Do you live as a practical Pharisee? Or are we living as those in practice, practically, every day, as Christ followers? Do we have Christian hope that regardless of what's happening around us, not that we don't care about what's happening around us, not that we're not engaged in what's happening around us, not that we're aloof and separate and totally other. No, we are engaged in life in every way, but it does not affect our hope. Let me give you a couple of ways to think about this. One, if you're living with ordinary hope, worldly hope, then that means that your hope is naturally focused on three things. First, circumstantial improvement. 
Circumstantial improvement. If this were just different, then I would have more hope. Then I would have more joy. Then I would have more fill in the blank. But our hope is so tethered to circumstantial improvement, we can't define hope apart from our circumstances. We struggle with that, right? But if, secondly, if our ordinary hope is naturally focused on materialistic acquirement. It's not if this were different so much as it say if I could just have that. If I could just get that thing, whatever it is, if I could just acquire more of those or that or this, then I could be in a place where I would feel more hopeful. Lastly, ordinary hope is naturally focused on positional achievement. It's not so much if that were different or if I could acquire this, it's if I could achieve a certain status. And in so doing, then, then hope would have arrived. What the Bible teaches us is not an ordinary hope, but a renewed hope. Renewed hope is supernaturally focused on three things as well. First, the resurrection of dead hearts. If we're going to have true, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us hope, then we are a people who understand that we are first people with dead hearts. And that, that my biggest struggles, my biggest issues are not my circumstances, my, my lack of materialistic wealth, nor my position. None of that is ultimately my biggest problem. My biggest problem is myself. My biggest thing to overcome is my own heart and the only one who resurrects my dead heart and makes it new and causes me to be alive and again and makes me like him is Jesus. So first, it's focused on resurrected dead hearts. Secondly, on resurrected dead bodies. If you're not familiar with Christianity, if you happen to be here as a seeker, you're going, what are we talking about? Are we, is walking dead stuff now? What is this zombie land? What, what are we talking about? What we're talking about is simply this. We are created physical beings made in the image of God. And we are made to have complete and full fellowship with him, unhindered, undefiled in every way, full communion with the God of the universe. That's why we exist. Scripture tell us, tells us that we are created by him and for him. And the reason that we feel so much frustration in life, the reason we feel so much emptiness in life is because we are created by the God of the universe physically and spiritually to be one with him, yet we have rejected him in every way and we look for that fulfillment in anything and everything but him. And so the one that we are created by and for, we've rejected and we seek to find that fulfillment somewhere else, that purpose somewhere else, that, that fullness somewhere else. And so what he reminds us through the finished work of Jesus is that there's now a way back to him. Christ has paid the penalty of sin. Christ has paved the way again for union and fellowship with him. And it's through his finished work. And what he'll do if we believe upon him is he will resurrect our dead hearts. And then there will be a day that comes when he will return again for all who have believed upon him. And in so doing, he will resurrect our dead bodies. And he will call us to be one again with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Not in some uh, weird ethereal place up there, but right here. He will come back here. He will reign forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. And we will reign with him. And we will be in a physical world just like we are now. Yet there will be no sin. 
and our bodies and our minds and our hearts and all of creation with us will be new. That's the third thing, is that it's focused on the renewal of all things. So why does this matter? What's the point? Is it just so that we can have cool theological conversations about where is true hope? No, it's because in real life, everyday practical situations, in real life hurt and pain, where are we focused? Where's our hope? It means that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how horrible things are around us, either in our personal life or in the world out there, as much as we grieve and lament and struggle through things like what happened in Texas and the shootings that continue to happen and all the mess that manifests in the world, we grieve and we lament and we hate it, but it does, listen, don't miss this, it does not affect our hope. It doesn't. It can't because our hope is not focused on the death and the decay and the horrible evil in this world, it's focused on, centered in, tethered to, anchored in the resurrection. That we have been called into newness of life now and for life to come, and so do we live like that? Do we live as though that we have a hope that the world knows nothing of and that when they experience the hope that we have, they go, what is that hope you have? Or, or do they experience a church that frets just like they do? Do they experience a church that freaks out just like they do? Do they experience a people who say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is our hope, but I'm freaking out. If that's what we present to the world around us, if that's how we live, then we don't, we don't know Christian hope. Because Christian hope is anchored in the resurrection. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to kill me. I'm on trial because I am telling you that the hope of the resurrection that you say you believe, the hope that we all long for, is only found in Jesus, and you hate me for it. That's our hope, he's our hope. The reality of the resurrection in the past and the reality of the resurrection to come is our hope. And every day, every day is an opportunity to redirect our hope from ordinary matters to the extraordinary reality of the resurrection. But look at verse 11. Watch how this passage ends. The Sadducees and the Pharisees start fighting among one another, literally fighting. It says that the argument became violent. Which, is there a part of you like me that just kind of, you kind of want to laugh at that? It's like, these religious people are literally fighting over Paul dropping that bomb about the resurrection. The tribune, this Roman official, he, he gets scared for Paul and pulls him out of there and he says, okay, let's get him back to the barracks, otherwise they're gonna rip him apart. And Paul's in the barracks and what's going through his mind is hard. I don't know, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But he's back in the barracks and 
It says the next night, look at verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Wow. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Second vitamin that we have to take daily. First is that, first vitamin is hope centered in the resurrection. Second is courage. And that's the presence. Where do we find courage? It's in the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is our courage. Can you imagine how Paul felt? I think sometimes we, we tend to pseudo-deify Paul as though he doesn't have emotions like we do and doesn't experience fear like we do. By this point in time in his, in his life and in his journey with Jesus, he had been beaten many, many times. He'd been arrested several times. He'd been stoned. And here he is again about to be torn apart by the Jews and he's just sitting in this barracks, wherever that is or whatever that looked like. And uh, sure, he's human. Sure, he's thinking, gosh, is all this worth it? Surely, yes, at some point, there were moments where Paul's courage waned. But I, I have confidence in saying that Paul, the reason I have confidence in this is because if you read all of his letters to the churches, there were several things that we can say, yes, Paul was a human like us, and he even identified as the chiefest of sinners. But I'll tell you this, he spent a lot of time with the Lord. He spent a lot of time seeking the presence of the Lord, and that's where his courage was renewed, was in the presence of God. It's in the presence of God where we find our courage renewed. If we try to muster up courage to live the life that he's called us to live, it'll wane and it may not come back. But courage for what exactly? Let me give you four things. I'm, I'm literally just gonna mention these without much commentary for the sake of time. We may come back to them next week. Courage for what exactly? Here's some things that we see even in this passage and in, in, in some of the chapters to come with Paul. First, courage to keep believing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the face of adversity. Courage to keep going as ministers and messengers of the gospel. To keep proclaiming, to keep loving, to keep telling, to keep saying Jesus is the answer. He is the hope. Secondly, courage to sacrifice comfort for the mission of God's kingdom. Courage to sacrifice comfort, to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of the kingdom, both in our own hearts and to the world around us, is always, it's always gonna require sacrificing our comfort. You see Paul doing that daily as he follows Jesus. Courage to do that takes godly courage. Third, courage to believe the promises of God even when they feel untrue. Courage to believe the promises of God even when they feel untrue. And I'll go ahead and mention the fourth one and then speak to both of those briefly. Courage to soak in the peace-saturated doctrine of the sovereignty of God. 
The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not a cop-out. It's not fatalism. It's not God's gonna do what he's gonna do and so I don't have to worry about it. It simply draws us back into the bedrock reality, the foundational reality that we sink our feet into, so to speak, to say, God is in control. He really is. He really is providential in all things and it doesn't in any way, in a way that we can't understand or fully fathom, negate my free will, my choice, none of those things, but it leads me to peace. Right before this passage, there was, a, there was something happened with Paul where many of the brothers came to him, many of the disciples came to him and said, hey, we, we had a vision, we had a dream that if you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna be killed. And so they began to try to convince him, hey, don't go back to Jerusalem. And Paul answered them and he says, why are you weeping over me and why are you causing me all this consternation? Listen, do you not know I am ready to die for Jesus in Jerusalem if I have to? And the answer from the disciples was simply this. We stopped trying to convince him and we just said, if God's will be, uh, let God's will be done. It's not a cop out either. That's a, what that is, is that's a people who are saying, we really are gonna pray towards this. We're really gonna pray for healing. We're really gonna pray for God to change circumstances. We're really gonna pray for things to be different. And sometimes he'll answer those, but sometimes he won't. And when he doesn't, I don't freak out, but I sink deeply into the peace-saturated truth that God is sovereign and his sovereignty actually has my good in view. And I'm at peace. To be a hope-filled Christian, to be a courageous-filled Christian doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to me anymore, and it doesn't mean that I don't get what I, that I get everything that I want anymore. It just simply means that I now trust in a God who I know per, knows purposes all things and controls all things for his glory and for my good, and I can rest in that and be at peace in that. I love the old hymn, the last couple of stanzas of this, this is my father's world. Listen to this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget, which is an old way of saying never. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. You see, sometimes we get mad at God because we say, God, how can I have hope? You're not answering any of my questions. You're not answering any of my petitions. You're not relieving any of my doubts. How could I have hope? Where can I be courageous when it seems though, Lord, the, the, the world has sucked away all my courage? And God's answer to you is simply this. Yeah, okay, I may not answer all your requests and petitions in this life, but the resurrection says yes and amen to them all. I have answered all your requests. I have answered all your longings for healing. I have, I have I have, and some of you will experience it in this life, but most of you will not. But on that great day, when the dead in Christ will rise and King Jesus comes to reign again, we will reign with him and the re reality of the resurrection will scream over us, all is well. And Christian, 
That is our hope and our courage. Jesus, oh Jesus, give us hope and courage in the resurrection. Give us courage to keep going forward, to believe your promises, to proclaim your truth, to rest in you and in your great sovereignty. And give us great hope as we look back to the resurrection of Jesus and as we look forward to the resurrection and renewal of all things, give us hope. You are good. You are so very good. So we sing that to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.